today we're, we're looking at the final session in what we've been calling Jesus the Cell Leader. And we have been looking and based it, basing what we've been teaching on, on this book which you can get from the book table by Robert E. Coleman called The Master Plan of Evangelism. Absolutely fantastic book. I've read it three times already in the last year. And um, what this does is, oh, it's all about evangelism. Well, yes, but it's, it's deeper than that. Because this book, and what we've been looking at over the last couple of months, uh, maybe not a popular subject, but an important subject, we've been looking at Jesus' strategy. What did he do for three years? And we've said a number of times, and it's so important, I don't mind saying it again and again and again, because we have to get it into our hearts and minds, that everything Jesus did had purpose. Everything that Jesus did had strategy. He didn't just get filled with the Holy Ghost and then start walking around, casting out demons, visit, and with no plan at all. No, he only had three years. If you had three years left, if I said you've got three years, then you're going up to heaven, what would you do? Would you just go spend those three years, week in, month in, and not even plan? No, I'm telling you, it would focus your mind. If I said you had three years left, you would want to plan every week of that. You would want to say, what do I want to do? What do I want to accomplish? And how, what do I want to leave after those three years? Well, that's exactly how Jesus planned and strategized. And we said that the most important strategy of Jesus was not the multitudes. He ministered to the multitudes, but that wasn't his, that wasn't his key strategy. In fact, later on, in his ministry, he actually dismissed the multitudes. If you read the Gospel of John especially, you find that the nearer he gets to the cross, the less time he spends with the crowds and the more time he spends with his twelve. Right from the beginning of his ministry, one of the first things that he did was begin to choose his cell group and call his men to him. In fact, this was Jesus' strategy for the multitudes, for the future. He put all his eggs in one basket, and that basket had 12 cell members in it. And so we thought, well, how did he look after his cell? What were, what were the sort of things that, that he did? How did he mentor them? What were the principles of his leadership? And how can we apply them today? And what have we got to say to them? We looked at some various headings. We looked at his selection and how the men that he chose were not what you would think he would have chosen. He didn't go to the great rabbi schools where they were training the, the brightest and best of the upcoming rabbis. He didn't pick a young Paul or a young Saul, did he? He didn't go to them. He didn't go to the professional bodies, to the educated on the contrary, we know who he went to, a real mixed bag of people, fishermen and tax gatherers and, uh, and people that, that were not the sort of people that you would expect that the Messiah would pick for his intimate, close team and that team that he would say, look, in the end, it's all down to you. But we also saw in those principles of selection that what they did have was they had a teachability. They had a passion for God and they wanted to change the status quo. Some of those early ones that he brought to him 
the, the Andrew and the James and the Peter, they were already very closely involved in the ministry of the revivalist John the Baptist. And then when John said, behold, the Lamb of God, they moved to him. So his selection, that, that which he valued, that which he saw in people, we can learn a lot about that today. Because remember Samuel, the great prophet, and he was looking for one of Jesse's sons to see who had the leadership qualities um, to, be, to be the king. And Jesse brought all his sons out except David. Why? Because David was not even considered to be in the category of leadership. He was just a shepherd boy. And Samuel kept thinking, this is the one. This is the one. This is the one. And God said, no, 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 no. He's saying, Samuel, the thing about you is, is you look at the outside, but God looks on what's the inside. And then finally he said, don't you have any more sons? And it was like, oh, oh yeah, I forgot, David. David comes and said, yes, this is a Lord's anointing. This shows us that when we're looking for potential in the kingdom of God, we, we just can't go by the world standards. That doesn't mean that we're looking for people that aren't excellent time wasters. Aren't in, on the, no, we're not, we're not talking about looking for people without passion. But what we're looking for is that which God is doing in someone. And uh, Jesus spent more time in prayer over his selection of those that he was going to work with than, than probably anything else. Because he, the whole future of Christianity depended on the 12 men that he was going to pick. We looked at the second principle of association and the fact that Jesus spent time with these men. It says that he called them to be with him and he took them and they went everywhere together and that was one of the most important things that Jesus had. It, it wasn't about a lecture or come along to my Sunday service uh, and I will give you all the things that you need to know. No. He was, they were with him all the time. They, they understood how he did life. They saw him not only ministering to the multitudes, but they, they saw him in the households. They saw him when he was tired. They saw him when he was hungry. They saw him when he was grieved and distressed. They saw him when he was elated and happy. They saw him every moment of his life. And that association meant that they could learn from him. And it's amazing how you learn from people. Often, it's the little things that teach you so much. It's not the great sermons or the great teachings, but often it's behind the scenes when you see how somebody deals with maybe something that might be insignificant, but you get insights into their character. You get to see what makes them tick. That's why biographies are so important. You know, when you get a biography, a good biography, the biographer, or even better, an autobiography, tries to get you in so you can see behind the greatness of the sportsman, or the greatness of the politician, or the greatness of the business person, so you can see and get a window of what makes them tick. Thirdly, consecration. They had a purpose. They weren't just going around having a good time in ministry. Jesus said to them that they, they had been called and purposed and that there was a destiny. There was a purpose for what they were learning. The three years that they, that they were with Jesus were not wasted, but those three years were a preparation for future ministry. For, fourthly, impartation. Jesus' ministry was one of impartation, not just information, but impartation. 
the importance of the Holy Spirit, where Jesus explained to them that what they would do would be in his name, and he imparted to them authority and power. It says he gave them authority over sickness and demons and all the works of the enemy, and then he sent them out. So there was impartation of authority, impartation. You know, some things are caught, not taught. You know what I'm saying? Some things are caught. You catch something. You can catch the anointing. You can catch the passion. You can rub up against greatness, and that can rub off on you. And then demonstration. This, this wasn't some theoretical, theological college that he went to. Jesus demonstrated to them. Right at the beginning, he said, watch me, basically. See how I do it. Watch and learn. I am the pattern. What I'm going to do, you're going to do. In fact, you're going to do greater things than I'm going to do because I'm going to be there with the Father praying for you. So they watched Jesus demonstrate, but they didn't just watch. He then said, now it's your turn. And he delegated. That's the sixth point we looked at. Jesus was training and delegating. It was show and tell. It was, okay, you've seen me do it. Now you go off the 12. Now you go off the 70 and see what you can do in those villages that I've, that I've sent you. And then seven, uh, supervision. And we looked at this last time. Jesus reflected on how his disciples were doing. He didn't leave them with any feedback, uh, without feedback. You know, today it's very important in workplaces that people get feedback and annual reviews and things like that because how can you know how you're doing if you're not getting feedback? You're sort of shooting in the dark, aren't you? Well, we find that whenever Jesus sent his disciples out to do something or to preach the gospel, when they got back, there would be a time where they would tell him everything that happened. They would give him a report and Jesus would make comments on their report. He would make comments on their discussions. He was always giving feedback. Some of the feedback he gave to his disciples was pretty tough as well. Jesus didn't suffer fools gladly and he didn't have time for worrying about bruised egos or oversensitivity. His time was short. He only had three years. He, he, could, he couldn't be walking on eggs around his disciples. They were going to get the best of him. They were going to be, very, they were going to be the closest to him. They were going to have to pay a price for that. They were going to have to take it. And the amount of times Jesus offended his disciples was a lot. I mean, many times he would define, many times it would be like he pulled the rug under their feet. You know, Peter, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Congratulations, Peter. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Two seconds later, get behind me, Satan. You know, he, he, but there was purpose in that. He was forming and shaping them. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't just doing it for the sake of doing. Everything that Jesus had, had purpose. And so now we come to the last of the principles that we find in this book by Robert Coleman. And this principle is one of reproduction. Reproduction. Jesus told his disciples to go forth and bring forth fruit. That was the plan. It wasn't that they were going to stay small. 
Jesus was working with a small group, but he didn't intend that small group to remain small. On the contrary, he expected that small group to be the beginnings of a great reproduction and multiplication of discipleship. The discipleship that Jesus had shown primarily with his 12, of course he discipled others, he taught others, but primarily his daily discipleship with those 12, he was sowing into the 12 so that they could reproduce uh, in the harvest that was, was about to come. Jesus expected his ministry to be duplicated and multiplied through the lives of his disciples. If you could imagine that if the 12 went away and didn't multiply Jesus' ministry, it would all be over. And so the expectation was that freely they had been given and freely they would give away. That everything that they'd learnt, they wouldn't keep to themselves in some small esoteric uh, uh, self-indulgent group. But everything he was sowing into these 12 men were for the multitudes for the multitudes. So it wasn't some sort of self-indulgent group. Sometimes with small groups and even with small leadership groups, they can become self-indulgent. It's like, you know, just patting one another on the back or I'm in, I'm in the clique, I'm in the in crowd. And beware of cliques. Cliques are one of the most dangerous things in the kingdom of God. And unfortunately, you find these in churches all around the world, where people get into the clique, the in crowd, get around certain leaders and there's a clique, and that clique becomes, <laughs> that clique becomes self-serving, self-serving, self-gratifying, and close to others. Well, that wasn't what, the, I mean, the 12 would like to, it to have been a clique. I mean, some of them were like, hey, Jesus, you know when you come into your power, how about me on, on your right and my brother on your left? Remember your auntie, that, you, know, you know, even his mother tried to twist his arm and say, look, they've run out of wine. And Jesus told the flat, woman, what do I have to do with you? My time has not yet come. Uh, Mary had no power over Jesus. She has no power over him today as well, right? He is the son of God and you don't need to go to Jesus through Mary. A saintly woman, she's no virgin by the way, she had other children, Jesus' brothers, and one of them was James, the great leader. So, you know, honor where honor's due, but um, she's certainly not the queen of heaven. Jesus did not allow, although he valued family relationships and he valued friendships, he had that inner circle, didn't he, of James, Peter, James, and John. But even that had purpose. Peter, James, and John were expected to carry things at a higher level than even the rest of the disciples. Truly, it was to those that have been given much, much is expected. And so this wasn't some little inner clique, although at times I've said the disciples, we even fought amongst themselves about who was closer to Jesus. No, this was training for ministry. This was, this 12, this cell group, this was a global vision. A global vision of discipleship. This small group, Jesus, when he looked at those 12 men, he thought, this is the apostolic basis of the global ministry post-Pentecost that will reach every family, tribe, and nation of the world. This is the apostolic foundation. 
And we know how important that that cell group was when we know later on in the New Testament that it speaks that the church is founded on the foundation, yes, of Christ Jesus, but also on the apostles and prophets, the apostolic foundation. And upon that 12 that Jesus ministered to, everything, the whole of the discipleship, was going to, to, to take place. He, Jesus was not only interested in discipling 12 men. He was interesting, interested in discipling nations through these 12 men. And we know that Matthew 20, 28, 19, that famous verse, it says, go into all the world. But it says, go into all the world and make disciples. Well, well what do you mean, Jesus, make disciples? Have you got... Any, uh, can you show us what it's like to make disciples? Of course, he said, I've been making 12 of them for three years. It was the apostolic model. And um, this reproduction, we can find principle here in John chapter 15, verse 1, which was one of Jesus's last messages to his close disciples. John chapter 15. <clears throat> I am the true vine, and my father is the, that is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me... You can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that your joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So Jesus is basically saying, look, if you don't produce fruit, it's useless. You, all of this work that I've been doing with you, Jesus is saying, all this time you've spent with me was not for its own sake. It was in order that you produce fruit. And if you don't produce fruit, all of what we have been doing together for these three years is absolutely wasted, pointless, useless. And look at the image that he gave of the vine tree and telling his disciples that they were the branches and explaining that that life and that ability comes from him. But look, he says, you bear much fruit. And if you bear fruit... I want more. It's not enough that you bear fruit. I, I want more fruit. And my father wants more fruit. 
So you're going to bear fruit, but if you're fruit bearing, vine dresser's going to come and cut you back so that you can produce more fruit. I mentioned this a few times, but I have this lovely apple tree in my garden which produces um, edible apples. You don't have to cook them. You can eat them, wash them straight off the branch. And last year, they produced just such a bumper crop of apples. It was amazing. And then my mum said, I'm going, to get the garden, I'm going to get a gardener in, a special gardener in, to sort your garden out for the autumn. Mum normally does it, but she's been a bit lazy, so she brought um, a professional gardener in. And she, and she told him what to do, and I came back at home, and I went out to look at my precious apple tree. I've got an apple tree and an oak tree, which I love very much. And I went out to have a look at my precious apple tree, and he killed it. He killed it. So I rang up my mum and said, Mum, he's killed my apple tree. I mean, it, was so, it had so many branches, so many apples. Uh, we, didn't, we had so many apples, we didn't know what to do with them. And then when I came back in the autumn, he had cut it down. I mean, there was barely anything left. And my mum said, oh, don't worry about it. Um, he knows what he's doing. I said, he doesn't know what he's doing. He's killed my apple tree. He said, Bruce, it's called pruning. I said, but there's pruning and there's pruning. He said, It'll be fine. It'll, it'll come back, and you see it'll produce a better quality of fruit and more in time. Well, I'm already amazed looking at it now. It's already blossoming. I mean, I don't know how much fruit, but it, it's amazing how quickly things grow back. I, I have no idea. I've, I don't have a clue what I'm doing in the garden, but it's amazing how things grow back. So this pruning. So even when we're producing something, the Father's going to come in, and he's going to give us a pruning process. And sometimes that pruning process is a little bit of a dying experience. God can prune in many different ways, and I don't want to say how and how he doesn't, but sometimes the tough times or the challenges or personal difficulties or personal character difficulties that you're going through, sometimes it's just the father pruning you back. And sometimes you can have like seasons of great fruit where you really feel like you know, you're going forward, things are happening, you're getting the breakthrough, the anointing's there, everything's happening, it's, it's coming together. And then out of that, sometimes you can be in a place where you think, what's this? What's this? It looks like I've taken, you know, five steps forward and now I'm taking ten steps back. Uh, where, where, where is the favor that was on me? A while ago, where, where, where was the fruitfulness? Where was, you know, everything I was doing was working. Things were going forward. I was, I was in a great place. Everything was going well. And now it feels like everything that I had achieved or everything that I'd won, where's all that gone? I thought I was progressing and I, I feel further back now uh, than I was at that time. Have I backslid? And do you know what? You've not backslid, although be careful not to backslide when you're in that situation because you can get a bit down, a bit depressed. What's it all about? And then you can end up backsliding. No, what's happened is you've just been pruned. And after a while, when you've been a Christian a while, a while, if you're alert to these things, you get used to the pruning process. After a while, sometimes it takes a while because we're so thick-skinned and not too bright when it comes to the things of the Spirit. But after a while, you get used to a season of pruning. 
where you've had a season of fruitfulness, a season of blessing, a season of breakthrough, and then all of a sudden things are harder. It's like walking through treacle. Things aren't happening like they should have. Oppositions are coming, and you think, you know what, I'm just not making process. I'm just firefighting all the time, or things like that. And then you go, wait a second. You know, God's still on his throne. God's purposes haven't changed. Wait a Wait a second. It's not my fault that all this thing is hitting me. We make mistakes, but you know, I just happen to be in this circumstance where I'm just trying to keep my head above water. And then you understand, if you can understand the seasons of God, God is pruning you. And you go through a difficult time, but I tell you, when you come out again and things start working, you think, thank God, I'm stronger than I was before. I'm fitter than I was before spiritually. I'm better than I was before. It's deeper than it was before. I'm stronger. And there's a strength and there's a character and there's an understanding that is far more mature and deeper than ever before. You know, sometimes you, you see this in, in the ministry and, um, you know, I think sometimes when I look back at my ministry and I think sometimes there's been seasons of great power, seasons of great manifestation, you know, you just lay hands on people and they're falling over all over the place. Great fun, feels good, you know. And seasons of great power, and seasons of great breakthrough, seasons of great blessing, seasons of great manifestation of, of the Holy Spirit. And then at seasons, it does, you don't feel like it's there as much. But then when you come out of that season and the same things are happening, a new season of the anointing, the anointing's the same, but you're different. You carry it with greater dignity. You carry it with greater gratitude. You carry it with greater understanding. You have grown, you have matured. The anointing's the same, or maybe, you know, the, or the anointing comes back in a wave, the anointing that you've been under before, but the difference is there's a maturity to the ministry. There's a maturity to your life. There's a seasoning that has taken place in your life. And so when, when Jesus is talking about reproduction, it's not always evident that God is doing a work of reproduction. So during the period of pruning, you don't feel very fruitful. You don't feel that you're reproducing. In fact, you feel like you've been cut back. <laughs> that, the, the very, you know, instead of reproducing and more, 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 the very thing that you have is being cut away. You're being cut right down like that apple tree was cut right. I don't think that apple tree had ever been that size for decades. I don't know how the apple tree felt about being cut down. I mean, it'd never been, but now it's coming back stronger. The blossom is there. And, you know, and I can see now, I can see that the gardener was right after all. And um, I make him a cup of tea when he comes next time and thank him for it instead of glaring at him. I can see it's coming back. And so that's part of reproduction and fruitfulness. It's interesting when you look at the 12 and the life of the apostles, and it's a fascinating thing to do, to trace the ministries of the apostles, and you can do that, not just through the book of Acts, but also early church history has quite a good record of the different apostles and where they ended up. People like Andrew ended up pioneering the gospel in India, for example. And many of them had great periods of fruitfulness, but also great periods of dryness. Some of them were cut down in their prime. You think, why did they, why did they die so quickly? You know, the Apostle James, not 
James the Lord's brother, but the apostle James died very early in Acts. You think, all that, three years, and within a couple of years after Pentecost, the apostles, one of them went down. And the thing, we see, we don't realize that the blood of the martyrs are the seed of the church. And so sometimes when it looks like somebody's not bearing fruit, they're going to bear fruit. Sometimes that fruit can, can, can be born in somebody else. Just like Jesus, he said, everything I've done, I've put into these men. And they bore, and I, I know it was Jesus all along, because you know he's, he's the vine and we're the branches, but if I can just say, they bore far more fruit than he did. Well, it was he through them, but nevertheless, it was them. On the day of Pentecost, more people got saved than ever got saved before. 5,000 men and everything. There was revival taking place. Not even Jesus saw that type of conversion rate. I mean, they were getting properly converted, baptized in water, filled with the Spirit, and they were being discipled. Jesus never discipled the thousands that the apostles discipled in the early book of Acts. He never discipled them. He taught them. He ministered to them. But he only discipled 12. And so sometimes, you see, we measure fruit in a very sort of modern way. You know, sometimes we're obsessed by numbers. How many numbers do you have in your cell? How many people do you have in your church? Now, that's important because numbers are people, aren't they? Every person is precious, and so the more people you have, the more precious people you have. But, but sometimes we don't realize that God works in different ways. And in church history, you see of people that, that, that sowed much, but their reaping or their fruit only came in generations to come. Generations to come. So you have to be very open about what fruitfulness means. But this is important because Jesus says that... Um, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burnt. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that if you don't bear fruit, much fruit, you're not saved? No, it doesn't mean. It's not, he's not talking about salvation here. He's already told his disciples at the beginning. He says, look, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you in verse 3. They're, they're already clean. They're clean because of the word, not because of their actions or fruit. Jesus is saying, look, you're clean. Let's get that out of the way. Not because of what you've done. You're not clean because of your fruit. You're not clean because of your works. You're clean because of the word I spoke to you and you believe. So Jesus is saying, we're not talking about whether you're going to go to heaven or not. But then he starts saying, right, you're clean. You're going to heaven. So now you need to be useful. And so what he's saying when he speaks about the branches being cut off and burnt, he is not speaking about someone ending up in hell because they didn't do enough work for him. What he's saying is, is you're useless to me. You're useless to me on the vine if you're not producing. So you might as well just come up straight to heaven because if you're not producing fruit for me, you're like a useless branch. In fact, you're like a dead branch. And what do you do with dead branches? You cut them off, you throw them away. They're rubbish to be burnt. Now, this dovetails very much with what um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if you're interested. 
where he speaks about nobody. He's, he, he's not speaking about fruit in 1 Corinthians 3. He's using a different terminology of bearing fruit, and that's building, building. And he talks in 1 Corinthians 3 that the only foundation is Jesus Christ, just like the only vine is Jesus. And so we have a foundation, Christ, salvation by grace, saved because of what Jesus did on the cross. But then on that foundation, Paul says you build a life. And you can build a life that's fruitful, or you can build a life that's unfruitful for the kingdom of God. You can reproduce, or you can be useless, and you can, you can be um, inf, uh, uh, totally impotent and not fertile for the kingdom of God at all. And so he says you can build with precious stones and gold, or some people that are like branches that don't produce fruit, or their building is stubble and hay. It's a bit like the, uh, the story of the three little pigs and uh, their, their houses. I'm going to be speaking on building your house on the rock at the seven o'clock service tonight. And, you know, one built with straw, one built with wood, was it? And one built with brick. And it takes a lot of effort to build a brick house. It doesn't take much to put up some straw tent. And you know the wolf comes and blows it and they all, and they all go there. Well, Jesus is here speaking about the quality of your life, like building a house on his foundation. And then he says this, that everybody will receive a critique of their life. You know, one of the principles that we looked at with Jesus with his disciples was feedback and supervision. Well, when we finally go to be with the Lord and end up in heaven, there's going to be a feedback session. And he's going to give us feedback on how we lived our lives for him in the light that he died that we might be saved. And 1 Corinthians 3 says this, that those that have built well or those that have reproduced or those that have bore fruit, they will receive an eternal reward. But those that have been branches that have not reproduced, have not sought to multiply, have not sought to bring fruit, that those types of buildings, a bit like those branches, he says that person will not get a reward, but they will be saved as through fire. What does that mean? It mean? It's like being in a house and suddenly you wake up and you find that your house is on fire and the flames are burning up everything that you own and everything that you have and you don't have time to take anything out. You just throw yourself out of the window and all that's left of you is you and your burnt pyjamas. And so to live a life where we're not involved in reproduction or bearing fruit, when we get to heaven, it'll be like the branches. Jesus will basically say, well, that was useless. You are like a branch that never produced and might as well have been cut down and put in the fire. You, you are like a building made with sticks and straw that was, that, that was not bringing glory to, to myself. Now, this doesn't mean that we all have to save thousands of people every day to be considered bearing fruit, no. But what this does mean is that we need to be involved in the vine. We need to be involved in active church membership 
I'm not talking about putting yourself on some electoral roll or some parish council. I'm talking about being active. And so today, as well as welcoming newcomers, we, we've had a little bit of a focus. You saw the, the promo DVD, which is just trying to express some of the values of Kensington Temple. We value the large breakthrough celebrations, but also we value just as much the twos and the threes and the cells and the relationships where discipleship takes place. And so you always look, what's the next step for me? That's what you always have to say. The Lord leads us step by step and decision by decision. Sometimes people are immobilized because they think that they have to do everything or nothing at all. But Jesus isn't asking you to do everything or nothing at all. He's just asking you to take the next step. So what would that step be for you? Well, thankfully here, if you're called to Kensington Temple, we have next steps for everybody. There's not a person in our church that doesn't have a next step that they can take, not just by themselves trying to find their own way forward, but with us together. People can take the next step. They're in a congregation. They can maybe take the next step, maybe at the end of service of speaking to someone, what, what are these cell groups about? What do they do? Somebody can be in a cell group and take a next step and say, do you know what, I'm going to go on the Living Free course and get the foundations in my life. Somebody can be in a cell group and they're you know, receiving but also learning to give to others and watch for others and say, do you know what, I think I'd like to be trained to be a cell leader. There's always another step. Someone might be a cell leader and have a cell and I might say, do you know what, I'm going to believe God to raise up some more cell leaders. There's always a next step for us. And Jesus just wants us to take the next step. That's all he asked of his disciples. And so we have this wonderful picture, as I bring this series to a close, in Acts. Now, the book of Acts is the model. One of the distinctive things about Pentecostals um, for the last hundred years, one of the distinctive theological traits of Pentecostals is that they look to the New Testament as a model for today. Many of the traditional churches and even some new churches, they look at the New Testament and think, well, that was the beginning, uh, but we'll develop and move on from there. And uh, there's no way that, 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 you know, there's principles, but not models for us today. And many of the traditional churches, of course, uh, uh, they're very little resemblance at all to the church of the New Testament. But the Pentecostals say Jesus is the model. What Jesus did, he wants us to do. And we also look at the book of Acts and we say, that's what we should be today. We need to model ourselves on the best of the book of Acts. That's what we need. And I totally, 100%, with all my heart, believe that. That we need to get back to New Testament Christianity. We need to get back to the church of Acts, that everything God wants us to be is found there. The model of Jesus, the model of his discipleship and the principles that we've been looking at. Uh, it's not just for Jesus, it's for us today. And the model of the book of Acts. Now, we want to be bigger than the book of Acts. We want a globe. We don't want just the Acts of the Apostles there in Jerusalem, then Samaria. We want the book of Acts 24-7 globally. That's what we want. We want the power, but we also want the pattern. We want the pattern 
of Jesus' ministry in the body of Christ like never before. We want the things that are important to him to be important to us. And so in the book of Acts, Jesus says you can't do it without impartation. You must do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And our senior minister this morning was speaking about um, rivers of life, rivers of the Holy Spirit, not just drinking in the power and presence of God and being filled with God's power, but being a river that what, what we receive from God comes out of us to bless and refresh others. God wants to refresh us and then he wants to refresh others through us. And so the book of Acts speaks about the day of Pentecost when the anointing and the power of God fell on the disciples. 5,000 people were saved and a mighty revival took place. And we get this wonderful picture of discipleship here in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And I want to end on this because this is what Jesus was planning for. All those days and months, yeah, I know he ministered to the multitudes, but that wasn't his main focus. I know he had the 70. I know he did this, that, and the other. But his primary focus of his three years was discipling his cell group. And then here in verse 42 of Acts 2, we see where, where, where now the multiplication and the reproduction took place. It says they devoted themselves. Now, now thousands of people have got saved in a couple of days. Thousands of people. Thousands of new believers. Thousands of people that need to be discipled. I mean, how are you going to cope with thousands? And look, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Can you see the reproduction? What the, what, where had the apostles got their teaching from? Jesus. Jesus, day by day, in that cell group, if I can use the word cell group. They'd learnt from him, they'd learnt from him, they'd received from him. He put it into 12. Just 12, the majority of it. 12 was the focus. 12 disciples teaching them, imparting, showing, manifesting, all these principles we've looked at over the two months. 12. And now we have thousands devoting. I mean, that is, that is a focus. Devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. But not just the teaching, to fellowship, koinonia, fellowship together. That's part, the, the word fellowship, it shouldn't really be fellowship, it should be partnership. Partnership, because koinonia, the word for fellowship, always has a goal. It's not just fellowship for fellowship's sake. Jesus didn't just have his disciples for some little glee club. You know, let's just have fun together. It wasn't a glee club. It, had, it was a partnership with a purpose. They devoted themselves to apostles' teaching and to partnership, to breaking bread and to prayers. And all came on every soul. The many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the poor. Proceeds to all as they had any need. And day by day. Just like Jesus with his twelve. Day by day. Attending the temple together. But not just that. Breaking food with gladness and generous hearts in their homes, praising God and having favor with all their people. And the Lord added, reproduced, multiplied. The Lord did it. Fruitfulness, day by day, those who were being saved. Now you have the multitudes, 
And they were gathering as multitudes, thousands of them every day in the temple court to hear the big celebratory preaching of the apostles with signs and wonders. But it wasn't just that. They were going back to their homes. They were going back into their groups. I'm not saying they called them cell groups, but they were, they, they were, they were the same principles to pray together, break bread together, disciple together, win together. And so the book of Acts is just so wonderful because you see this focus that Jesus had on his 12. And then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes. And I believe the Holy Spirit came because the discipleship was there. It was there. It didn't come with a whole bunch of people. It didn't come on the multitudes. He didn't fall on the multitudes that were at the feeding of the 5,000, did he? He fell on the disciples because he knew that the disciples would be able to bring in the harvest and not just preach the gospel to all nations, but more importantly, make disciples. And what Jesus wants us to do now is disciple whole nations. Think of that. He discipled 12, and now he's commanding us not to disciple 12, but as the church of Jesus Christ, to disciple whole nations. So this has been a, a, a brief look at the leadership qualities and strategies of Jesus, something that people rarely do. But next week, we're going to go back, as I said, to a more sort of like a five o'clock teaching service where we're going to be looking at the theology, at the Bible teaching, getting deep in here about what the Bible teaches about family matters. So that'll be taking place next week. We also have our graduation, the last Sunday with R.T. Kendall before him and Louise go back to America. He's going to be speaking at the 9, 11 o'clock service, and then he's going to be going out at our 7 o'clock uh, graduation service for the Bible school. God bless you.